0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. Uh, Today I'm talking with Margaret Hall about her new book, Geminiani, Life and Lessons from Broadway and Beyond. Margaret, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I, I want to get to know a little bit of your background and kind of what led you to writing this book. I know you're a, a journalist as well as as an author. Uh, could you give us a sense of kind of the, the path that led to this book?
1: Absolutely. So I actually began as a performer. I performed in the musical theater from about the age of six onwards up. And I was in the middle of getting a degree at NYU Tisch School of the Arts when the pandemic struck. Mm. Now, while I was at Tisch, I was also teaching musical theater history on the side. I'm autistic, and musical theater history is something that has fascinated me since I could form language. And so it was a way that I connected with my peers, and I also made sure I made rent every month, was I taught classes about the history of the American musical and understanding the material that we were going over in school just a little bit deeper. And I really doubled down on that during the pandemic, and I had, in previous years, connected with a woman named Jennifer Ashley Tepper. Now, for anyone who doesn't know Jen, she is the creative director at 54 Below and an incredible musical theater historian in her own right. She has a series called The Untold Stories of Broadway, which is a remarkable grouping of books of Broadway anecdotes. And she had the foresight on May 5th, 2020, to connect me, who didn't necessarily know where I was going other than I needed to make rent with my classes, with a man named Paul Gimignani. Now, Paul is functionally the right-hand man of Stephen Sondheim. He was in Steve's life. He is still, in many ways... And he's a music director, and he is arguably the most influential music director currently alive. And so people had been trying to get him to write a memoir or something in that capacity for well over a decade. But he had always put it off saying he didn't have the time, he had too much going on. Lonnie Price, a celebrated director who's known Paul since he was a kid, called him during the pandemic and said, you officially have nothing but time. Mm-hmm. And Lonnie, who's a good friend of Jen's, connected Jen and Paul. Jen wasn't in a place to help him with that book, but she had an inkling that I was the right person. So she connected Paul and I, and we immediately hit it off. And I like to say that Paul has a couple of superpowers, but the foremost of his superpowers is that he knows who someone is supposed to be before they even do. And so while I've now become a journalist, I'm a writer full time, The I've closed the performing chapter of my life. He knew that before I even knew what was coming, and he really fostered me stepping into that place.
0: Mm, Great. That's a wonderful story. So the book is is not a memoir, but obviously it draws a lot on your conversations with Paul. What was that process like working with Paul on this book?
1: I feel like I functionally crawled into his skull for about six months. (laughs) We talked every single day. A Day Did Not Go By, Where I Was Not Talking to Mr. G. And while, yes, it's not technically a memoir, I think of it as a memoir personally because I consider myself to be a bardic historian in the old Irish tradition, Mm -hmm. which means that I am trying to capture the perspective of a single individual, at least in the case of Gemignani. That's what I'm approaching it as. And so what I was trying to preserve in Amber was Paul's perspective on what he lived through and Paul's opinions, so that when Paul is no longer here, someone can open this book and it's like having a conversation with him. And it's like having these stories told to you by him, but through a fact-checked, vetted, expanded, historically-centered basis that a biography has.
0: And you um, also spoke to some other people as well, right? Oh,
1: I spoke to hundreds of people. Yes. I, who, who are
0: you most excited to get to talk to?
1: I mean, the easy there's some big is names Sondheim. here.
0: Yes, wonderful. What was that like?
1: Sondheim is—he's—I still struggle to talk about him in the past tense. Sondheim a was is, yeah. a fascinating man. I spoke about this in a semi-eulogy reflection that I wrote for Theater Mania after his passing. He was a human being, just like the rest of us. And while he told me many incredible things that came into the book, I think the most important thing he taught me was that. And I think it's something he made a point of teaching people his entire career. So many people have these stories of he would summarily dismantle the sort of deification that had happened around him. So that by the end of your first conversation with him, you were two artists speaking to each other. And I think that's something we all could benefit from in terms of just approaching every conversation with everyone we meet with that kind of grace. He was a genius in many ways, but I think he was also a genius in terms of interpersonal connection in that way. Mm-hmm.
0: That's wonderful. You, uh, you write that the job of a music director is a nearly invisible position. Mm-hmm. For those of us who maybe don't know, what does a music director do?
1: They put the music in musical, is the pithy one-liner I like to use. Basically every single note you hear when you walk into a musical is because of a music director. Yes, a composer writes it, yes an orchestrator orchestrates it, but pretty much everything that is not sound effects programmed by a sound engineer is coming from the music director's ear, coming from their taste, coming from their guidance. All of the vocals, all of the music being played by the orchestra, everything that's happening within the chorus, they are key, and they are the creative team member who typically stays with a production for the longest amount of time. Once you get to opening night people like your director your choreographer they move on to their next project. Hal Prince famously would have a meeting about whatever his next show was the night after opening night on a show because that way no matter how opening night went he was already ready for the next thing. Mm. Paul would stay with productions for years at a time if they ran that long oftentimes staying the entire length of a show's run and it was up to him to keep the show in shape and to sort of Be one part guiding hand, one part therapist for everyone else that goes into making the show.
0: Mm -hmm. So he's the one who's rehearsing the pit. He's rehearsing the, the singers. Is that right? That's so he has a dual function sort of he's he has a job during the run, but he also has a job in rehearsal. Is that right?
1: Yes. So some music directors are not also conductors. That's becoming slightly more common in this day and age. But traditionally, your music director is also your conductor. Your conductor is who's there in the day to day. Your music director is who's there in pre-production. Your music director is the person who's at auditions from typically the very first audition, listening to every single person come through because they know what to hear in terms of what they need from a singer for the show. They're the person who is there in functionally every single rehearsal, certainly every single music rehearsal, and it's them who really set the sound of a show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the way that a director directs bodies on stage, music directors direct music.
0: Great. That's a wonderful way to put it. Um, there's a, a sort of uh, eternal debate among theater people about whether a show should uh, be be locked once it opens and kind of uh, almost like it's on a click track, mm-hmm. be the same thing that you see night after night after night, barring any accidents. And mm-hmm. there's another approach that says, no, it's, it's a live art form for a reason. It should live. It should breathe. It should change based on the moment. What was Paul's approach to that question?
1: For Paul, every single show is alive. He started as a jazz musician. He was a jazz drummer. And just as jazz has an improvisational, very personality-based nature, so does theater. Part of the idea of freezing a show is around people wanting to make the theater like physical and tangible in a way. There's a difference between like art that like stays if you want to think of it as staying Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: visual arts are something like that like someone made the venus de milo and it continues to exist many hundreds of years after it was first made it has changed somewhat over the years but it is still the venus de milo the moment a piece of theater stops being made it stops to exist remnants can exist You could have a script, you could have a score, photographs, maybe even an audio recording, but those are all different than theater. Theater is what happens in the moment, and the second it happens, it's done. And part of the glory of that is that even if you don't change a single word throughout the run of a show, the meaning can change. I'm sure any performer can tell you ways that they've found new colors to keep a show feeling fresh for them years into a long run. And Paul really would embrace that of keeping the show true to the original intention of what they made in the rehearsal room, but also being fully present with his performers that they knew they had a net that would catch them if they wanted to take a leap and try something new. Paul, he memorizes every single one of his scripts, and every single one of his scores. You'll often notice if you ever go to see him conduct, he very rarely has something on the music stand unless it's something he jumped into a week before the performance because he likes to internalize it in the same way that it's internalized by the performers. So his eyes are on them the entire show. And if his eyes are on them the entire show, he's right there with them the moment they have the impetus for an idea and he can support it with the orchestra.
0: That's sort of a superhuman feat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's One of my questions that I prepared, I have a list, and one of them was, is it actually literally true that he memorizes the score of every show? But you've you've answered that, it's true. He still
1: knows 90% of them. I can't tell you the number of times we would be on the phone, and he'd mention something, and then he'd tell me, go check your score. It's like measure 98, stanza 7, and he'd know exactly where it was. (laughs) And that's a show he hasn't done since, say, 82. Wow.
0: Wow. Mm -hmm. That's amazing.
1: He loves the music so much, he internalizes it as a part of his own life.
0: Wow. And that just must be something about the way his, his brain works. I mean, that's, that's, that's not something that you can learn, I would imagine. That's something that, that has to be at, at some level just an innate, you know, like sort of <laughs> almost parlor trick that you can do.
1: Maintaining oh. scores for that long? For decades on end, that is probably a special Paul trick. But in terms of just memorizing a score at a time, I think that's doable for most musicians if they sit down Mm. and, like, take the time to really do it and put in the effort in the same way that actors are memorizing their lines on stage. Now, granted, when Paul is doing it, he's memorizing the equivalent of, like, 13 to 18 different tracks because he's memorizing every single instrument in the pit plus all of the vocal lines that are happening. But I think it's sort of incredible what the human brain can do when we put our mind to it. And memorization is one of those things.
0: Great. Other than his prodigious memory, what are some of the things that make uh, Mr. G as you called him earlier, Mm -hmm. distinctive as a music director? Why do people go to him time and time again?
1: You just have to love him. And I know...
0: (laughs) An important quality in a rehearsal room. You know, likability. It's nothing to shake a stick at.
1: Oh, it is nothing to shake a stick at. There is a reason that when Jerome Robbins went to Stephen Sondheim and said he wanted to put together what became Jerome Robbins Broadway, the first words out of Sondheim's mouth were, you need to get Paul Giamagnoni because he knew that the only thing that was going to soften the hard edges of Jerome Robbins was if that cast could go to someone like Paul when they were getting overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Paul is an incredible listener. He doesn't love everyone, but everyone thinks Paul loves them. Even if he doesn't <laughs> necessarily agree with someone, he will find a way to make you feel heard and make you feel supported. He is just such a genuinely kind man. I can't tell you the number of people he's given a first chance to in life. What happened with him sort of throwing this book in my lap does not happen. That is the Cinderella story. Mm -hmm. But it's not as much of a Cinderella story when you think about the fact that it was done by Paul Gimignani, because he has done this to hundreds of people in this industry, because that's how it happened for him. He got his first job working on the national tour of Cabaret because he decided to talk to a guy coming out of the stage door about music after seeing his friend Ed Winters in the show. That man happened to be Hal Hastings, who was an incredible music director, and Hal gave him a job on the tour because he knew he was a drummer. He had learned that from their conversation, and he saw something in Paul, and Paul has carried that impetus forward for his entire career. The number of musicians, actors, I mean, Merrily We Roll Along is the easy example. He was in every single one of those auditions. If you've ever seen the documentary by Lonnie Price, when they show sort of all of the footage about making the show originally, Paul is at every single one of those casting sessions. He is seeing thousands upon thousands of people auditioning and he is giving every single one of them his attention. And he's deciding if he's going to sort of change your life that day. Mm. And he can make that decision, and he is very, very rarely wrong.
0: That's an incredible documentary. If our, our viewers haven't uh, seen it, I, I I watched it when it was on Netflix. I'm not sure if it's still on there, but if it is, uh, uh, Run Don't Walk, <laughs> an In amazing opinion, portrait it's the best of the documentary
1: political. ever made about the musical theater. It's such a love letter, but also so honest about the struggles.
0: Wow. That's that's um, that's that's high praise because uh, I think a lot of people would mention the the company cast recording documentary as their Mm -hmm. favorite musical theater documentary. But I agree. There's something about the making of, you know, a a show that started out as a flop that provides something that that even that wonderful company documentary does not.
1: And in that company documentary, you get a nice, good look at Hal Hastings. He was the original conductor and music director on company. So he's the man in the glasses and the light colored shirt who's conducting everyone during the session.
0: So you mentioned uh, Gemignani's uh, long association with Stephen Sondheim. And I get the sense that that's sort of if you divide Stephen Sondheim's career into roughly half, uh, it seems like Gemignani comes in a- around that halfway point. You know, it's it's like you said, it's after company. Uh, but but it's it's uh, he he's there for Sunday in the Park with George. He's there for Sweeney Todd. He's there for sort of those great, you know, second act mm-hmm. Sondheim masterpieces. Do you do you see any kind of influence of him on those pieces or was Sondheim just the kind of guy who <laughs> knew exactly what he wanted to do and nothing was going to change his course
1: oh without question there's influence that that's almost like that's I can hear Steve in my ear he would laugh at that <laughs> um <laughs> so I think of Sondheim's career as existing in thirds there's the period up to company there's the Hal Prince years which is company to merrily we roll along and then there's everything after hmm and Paul is there for everything after and basically all but company for the Hal Prince years. Paul comes into the fold through Hal Prince because Hal Prince and Cabaret and Hal Hastings brings him into the room for Follies after a series of fun kerfuffles you can read about in the book. And from Follies on, Paul is in the room. He is the drummer On Follies, after Hal Hastings unfortunately passes away far too young, he takes over A Little Night Music, and from that point forward, he is the Sondheim music director. And something that makes me emotional every time I talk about it, but especially since Steve's passing, is the story of a drink that the two of them had before Paul took over A Little Night Music. Steve brought him to a little hole-in-the-wall bar near the theater, bought him a drink. And when Paul asked him if there was any sort of advice that he might have before he took up the baton officially for the first time, Steve took a long measured moment, looked at him and said, just do what you do. Mm -hmm. And the trust in that remark is truly indicative of their relationship for the rest of Steve's life of if Paul went to Steve and said, I think this needs to be this, or I don't think this is working, Steve took him seriously, and probably four out of five times implemented the change. And if he didn't, he would explain to Paul exactly why he wasn't, and typically they would find an even ground together. Things like the way an orchestra should sound almost entirely on Paul and whoever the orchestrator they were working with at the time. Oftentimes it was Jonathan Tunick or Michael Sterabin, any number of brilliant orchestrators came and went, but Paul works very, very closely with music departments. The sort of easy example that I can pull of a decision made by Paul Gimignani drastically changed a Sondheim show is Sweeney Todd. Are you familiar with the whistle in Sweeney Todd?
0: Oh yes, of course.
1: So the whistle is one of the most iconic sonic markers of that show. It is not in the score. It is a gong. It was orchestrated as a gong, Sondheim composed it as a gong or some other opening sound. Paul, with the brilliant since-past scenic designer, went and they were sort of putting together how things should work, and they found this legitimate old roof from a Victorian factory that they brought down that was a main part of that original set design, and attached to the roof was this old Victorian factory whistle that would ring to tell you, oh lunch is over, back to the sort of assembly line, so to speak. And They really liked it. They had to move it into the very back of the theater, swathed in curtains and things, because the first time they played it, it made everyone's ears ring and sort of freaked out everyone. They were screaming. It was (laughs) way too loud to be inside the Uris Theater, now the Gershwin but they figured out how to make that happen. And Paul was the person who played that every single night. There was a long tube that he would trigger from a step that he had next to his podium. And he had a very short period of time where he had to press it and then wait for it to sound because it took that long to travel through the tube to trigger the whistle. And so that's a very sort of clear thing of, I don't know any major production of Sweeney that even if they don't use a whistle, they use something very similar. Because that's such an iconic part of that score. And that's just Paul deciding he wanted something stronger than a gong to open that moment. And that's just a decision he made. And then when he showed it to Steve, Steve said, if you think it's right, we'll go with it. And that was really their relationship, is they were true collaborators. They trusted each other so much musically and had so much respect for each other that they really collaborated.
0: And to me, that whistle serves a very important metaphorical function because it really ties the action of Sweeney Todd into that kind of factory life of the Industrial Revolution period. And and really, I think for me, it's, is what makes it a musical that is a metaphor for industrialization and the way that the industrialization process kind of grinds through workers' bodies. I feel like that's mm-hmm. what Sweeney Todd is about. And I don't know if it would feel like it was about that if it if it weren't for that factory whistle being such an integral part of the score.
1: In many ways, I think of that whistle almost like the world's shortest overture. mm. Because if we're, there's many different definitions of overtures. And this is something I've been wrestling with in my work this year. In fact, you can read quite a bit of it on Playbill. But if we're going to go with the definition that an overture exists to put you in the world of the show you're coming to see and sort of transition you from your outside life into this new world you're entering as sort of a transitional point, Sweeney does that in about two seconds with that whistle. Mm Mm-hmm. The second you hear it, you sit up. You jolt. It's jarring. It's uncomfortable. You want the sound to end, but it grabs your attention like nothing else. And I don't think it's a mistake that that whistle is not only used at the beginning of the show, it is used every single time Sweeney kills someone and slits a throat. That is what sounds, because it is just as jarring every time you hear it and to link that sonically with the act of the murders, I think is a stroke of brilliance.
0: Great. I I, I know that there are many such stories in the book, so I, I won't make you recite all of them, but mm-hmm. could you give us just a couple more examples of ways that he was a, a kind of decisive part in crafting the sonic landscape of one of these shows?
1: Oh, there's so many. Um,
0: it's a big question, take your time. <laughs>
1: A fun one is the film of Little Night Music, starring Elizabeth Taylor. And this is actually another example of how important collaboration is in a music department, No Man is an Island. And it's a story of how he and Jonathan Tunick completely upended a sequence, basically. They were, I believe, shooting in Vienna, if my memory serves. And they were filming a sequence where Elizabeth Taylor as Desiree is at this sort of celebration. There's a military band that's supposed to be playing behind her. It's not a scene that's in the musical. It was specific to the movie. Now, your mileage may vary on how much you like the movie, but this was a sequence that was added for it. And the band that had been brought in was not like Broadway-level musicians. It was an actual local military band. And they weren't great, They roughly could play the notes that they were given, but none of them were necessarily career musicians, let's put it that way. And as Paul likes to say, it takes a lot of time to make someone good, but it doesn't take very long to make someone so bad it's funny. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so he and Tunic sort of had a mind meld moment, and they decided to tell the band just Off the cuff. On the next take, can you just transpose it up a half step? And the band just it fell apart the moment they were trying to do that by sight. And it was so bad it was hysterical. And it's one of the best scenes in that movie is it's so funny of she (laughs) Elizabeth Taylor is very clearly trying to keep her composure, do this like scene of like, oh, this is this great honor. But this band is just atrocious in the back. And it's something of he and Tuna just had to decide on the fly. How are we going to fix this? Time is money. The camera's rolling. And it really worked.
0: That's wonderful. I love that story. Um, The rehearsal process for Evita sounds like it was very stressful which i didn't really know about uh before i read this book could you give us a sense of kind of what that process was like and and what jim and uh, contribution to that was
1: the rehearsal process for evita was extremely stressful i think sometimes people think bringing a show from say the west end to the us wouldn't be that hard because well you've already like worked out all the kinks on the other side of the pond are you just transferring it over it is very rarely one-to-one And with Evita, it was especially not one-to-one. There were many different points of difficulty. Paul had a very fascinating journey with Evita because he was still working on Sweeney Todd when Hal went to go start work on Evita. And so he struck a deal with Hal that he would get the show sort of together get it cast get it ready to go and they would hand it over to someone else to conduct because he wanted to stay with Sweeney that was his baby it's one of the first times Paul sort of took a stand in that way and said I want to stay rather than Hal telling him where to go and the most interesting stories for me are when Paul then came into Evita after Sweeney had closed. So the show has opened. They're out of the official rehearsal period, but he's still there working with Patty, working with Mandy, doing that production several months into its run. One of my favorites, and you were talking about sort of people I've interviewed, I wish I was a good impressionist because if I could deliver mm-hmm. this story in the way Patty Lapone shared it with me, it her her line delivery was perfection, basically. Well, she's
0: she's Fanny LaFone. I mean, exactly. it's to be expected. Yeah. It was
1: just uh, what a good storyteller. But they were in the middle of doing the show. It's the summer. It's hot. I don't know how familiar you are with the original costume plots for Evita, but there was a lot of wool coats and like heavy duty fabrics. And while today it's much more common for there to be air conditioning in a theater. Back in the 70s, 80s, it was pretty rare to have air conditioning backstage if you were lucky enough to even have it in the house. And under stage lights, as I'm sure you know, stage lights are incredibly hot, even in the best of circumstances. And so these casts are just melting in this production of Evita in these big, thick, beautiful, but densely made costumes Mm -hmm. under these stage lights with no airflow in this summer heat, and Patty for many, many days was talking to stage management of, we need to get fans, we need to get something in here, this lack of air circulation, someone's going to get hurt, and she just was not being heard for whatever reason, and so finally in the middle of a performance as Patty made her exit, she screamed at the top of her lungs, where are the fucking fans? And Paul heard her because Paul was watching her as she made her exit, and even though her microphone was off and she was surrounded by these big heavy-duty curtains, so her sound was muffled, I don't think they could hear it in the audience, Paul could hear her. And so Paul went out and with his own money bought a bunch of fans and brought them to the stagehands and instructed them to hang them in the wings. He eventually did get reimbursed from the general management office, but... Paul really worked with Patty in that way to fix this problem that was building and that really is evita to me is it's a series of people working together to address problems as they appear and doing their best communally to try and find a balance hmm.
0: Did he play a similar kind of uh, balancing role on merrily?
1: Oof uh, yes but perhaps not as delicately. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Are you laughs> tell us, referring tell us to what the you re- mean by that yes
1: are you referring to the rehearsal process or to his extracurricular activities
0: let's let's do both margaret if if you're comfortable going there
1: okay we can go there so with the rehearsal process paul was a paternal figure for many of he calls them the kids that were in merrily they're no longer kids but they will always be kids to him and uh, he literally walked one of them down the aisle when they got married donna marie wow. Wow. Like, he he became the person that they could cling to as their worlds were being flipped upside down again and again. Paul was the steady place in a storm.
0: And, and it's a pretty amazing list of kids. I mean, it's a notorious oh, flop, oh. but if you look at that cast, they've oh, a lot of them insane. are people Bonnie who've gone bases. Tim
1: Walton, Jason Alexander, Tanya Pinkins. The list goes on and mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. Just inc- it's an incredible original company. And Paul really was there to sort of guide them through it, be a shoulder to cry on if they needed, be someone to rail at if they needed to let it out. Just the person that they needed, he was there to be. And he was also that for Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim for the most part in this process. As anyone who knows about Marilee knows, it was a very difficult birth for a show. It didn't necessarily go the way they wanted it to go, but Paul was doing his best to sort of Play both sides in that way of trying to be everything to everyone. Additionally, he had been sort of hop, skip, jump, pulled into working on another show at the same time as *Marilyn We Roll and that is what would go on to become *Dreamgirls*. Now, people did not know this before *Gemini* was published. This was something that was not spoken of. It was kept under wraps because paul had always worried it would hurt hal to know he'd been working with someone else because hal really thought of paul as being his boy mm-hmm. but after hal's passing paul became more comfortable with talking about it and before steve passed which was before the book came out but while we were working on it he had a discussion and told steve what had happened and steve had no bad blood or anything but what was going on is Paul was really struggling to say no to anybody. He wanted to be there for all of his friends if they needed him. And so during the day, he was rehearsing Merrily We Roll Along, pulling it on its feet, being a father to a motley crew of a cast. And in the evening, he was going to Michael Bennett's apartment and deciding the song order list for Dream Girls and sort of putting that show together in everything but name. In addition, he also had a toddler at home. <laughs> <laughs> and who knows what would have happened if Marilyn had run longer. He very intentionally did not get involved with Dreamgirls when it officially came to Broadway in the beginning. He did the workshops, but then handed it over to a music director he and Michael Bennett selected together, and he went back to the Sondheim and Hal Prince fold. He did eventually step into Dreamgirls for a couple of brief stints. It's actually the first time that his son, Alexander, remembers seeing his father conduct, was going to see him conduct Dreamgirls. Mm. But in general... It was a really good sort of learning lesson of you can't stretch yourself too far. I don't think there's anything Paul could have done more for Merrily to save it. But I know that's something that probably lingers still in the back of his mind. If I hadn't also been working on Dreamgirls, would I have had the dream epiphany that would have fixed things? Although he would hate that I say fixed things. Because in his opinion, the version of the show they had by closing night worked and frankly, I agree with him. I think sometimes these things that people do to the show to try and fix it break it further. Yeah, but that's sort of a taste thing.
0: Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. Well, and and the the current revival of Merrily is at a New York theater workshop is mm-hmm. is very well received. So oh, very uh, nice it's not necessarily the. I mean, I know they've they've made some changes since then, but it's not necessarily the show itself that was the problem. Uh, if we even want to speak of a of a problem. Uh,
1: it's, it's complicated. And there is another theater historian by the name of Ben West, who has some really wonderful thoughts on Merrily and how it's almost a paradox of a show in that in order for it to work, it has to not work. Mm-hmm. It has to sort of feed into itself like this Ouroboros. It's fascinating.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, I want to talk about one more uh show and then if there's anything else that that you want to add um yeah. i'm very open to that but i want to talk about assassins mm-hmm. uh one of my favorite shows i know it's it's maybe not uh everybody's favorite sondheim show and i don't know if it's my number one but it's it's up there it's in my top five um it's a, it's a very weird show <laughs> <It's> <laughs> maybe maybe even uh teetering on the edge of incoherence. Um, but I, I think it works. I think it comes together, and there is a dramatic throughline, even if it is this sort of vignette style. Um, what was Gimini's process like working on that show? Is he was he part of the reason why uh, it, it hangs together despite being such a ungainly mess in other ways?
1: So for the first off, uh, Assassin's is my favorite musical of all time, and it is the subject of my master's thesis.
0: I, I, knew you, I, I knew I liked you, Margaret. I knew it from the start.
1: <laughs> I think it is a brilliant piece of theater. And frankly, I agree with Steve when Steve says it's the closest his work ever got to perfection. I think it's a masterwork. You can read the thesis for the rest of that. But <laughs> in terms of Paul's contribution in making the show work, the credit really should belong with John Weidman. John Weidman is a genius. And, of course, Sondheim was as well, but I think people don't realize how incredibly good Weidman's work was on their collaborations. Mm -hmm. His work on Pacific Overtures and Assassins is peerless. It is so incredibly good and detailed yet tight. He's never purple prosy, especially in Assassins. And that is a big part of how that show is able to hang together is it is so well constructed as a play that the music is embellishing what is there. It's not trying to patch any holes, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Because of that, it also freed up Paul and whoever was working on a different production as orchestrator to really just paint with all of the musical colors I highly recommend if you have the time or any of your listeners have the time, compare the cast recordings from the original production to the 2004 Broadway production. It's almost entirely the same, like, main creative team. It's still Sondheim. It's still Weidman. It's Paul at the Baton. It's Michael Starabin orchestrating but you can feel their artistry as a foursome grow and the way that it is sort of enhanced by the work of Joe Mantello as a director and things in other ways, the incredible performances that it captures as well. To me, Paul's big contribution to the history of the American musical with Assassins though, is not actually Assassins, but in how he went about playing Assassins in that 2004 revival. Mm. Because when they brought that show into the Studio 54 theater, it did not have an orchestra pit anymore. Studio 54 was originally a theater before it was a nightclub or anything like that. But it had long since had its pit filled in with cement to turn into a series of offices in the basement. You might have heard stories of the basement during the Club 54 days and sort of the VIP rooms down there. That used to be the orchestra pit. There is no longer an orchestra pit. It, you would have to bring in dynamite to try and reopen. <laughs> and so they had kind of gotten away with it with the first musical that they had staged there, Cabaret, because the band is on the stage. But other than that, it was thought that you could only really use that space for plays. And that is what is primarily used in that space, unless Mr. Gimignani is at the baton, because he figured out a system where... When you walk into 54, you'll see that it has very robust boxes, like box seating. And when he first went in there, it was being used as storage. It's where they put old broken amplifiers, messed up seats, that sort of thing. They weren't selling them to the house. Mm-hmm. And Paul sat down and devised a way in which to divide his... Because his big thing is he will never play off stage. He has to make uninterrupted eye contact with his actors. He will not work from a monitor. You are not going to put him in a closet somewhere and pipe the sound in. He would sooner jump off a bridge. Mm -hmm. And so he knew that he had to have these sight lines, but they couldn't put him in a normal pit. And they were threatening to put him backstage, and he was not going to have any of that. And so he figured out how to divide his orchestra into these two boxes, the foremost boxes of the space, also occasionally, depending on the production, someone above him. He will pretty much always conduct from the left box and he works it out with these incredible musicians that he contracts, that they're watching him across the audience and he conducts them from their separate vantage points. And it is miraculous to watch you can see it in the pro shot recording of she loves me that was made several years ago Mm -hmm. because paul was also the conductor for that at studio 54 and it is truly like watching a wizard the way that he is able to maintain attention of both everyone who's on the stage they're all fully aware of where paul is at but also his orchestra and the way that the sound is weaving over the heads of the audience it's masterful and it's now become sort of de rigueur in that space that if you're going to do a musical, this is the setup you're using. And it's because Paul figured out exactly where the sweet spot was in that theater.
0: That's wonderful. Well, thanks for that story. I, I really uh, uh, enjoy it. I feel like that kind of gives us a sense of why he's so innovative and, and well-known as a music director to this day. Um, finally, my last question is uh, what piece of advice or, uh, or guidance that Gemignani gave you do you feel like you want to pass on to our listeners as a kind of little chestnut to remember from this conversation?
1: Everything always boils down to following your heart. You can extrapolate it in whatever direction you want to, but your heart knows the way to go. Your heart is wise and you have to listen to it. Listen to that gut intuition. You might think you're out of your depth, you might logic yourself out of a decision that could change your life for the better. If Paul had applied cold, hard logic when Hal Hastings asked if he wanted to go on tour with Cabaret, he probably wouldn't have gone because I've got a steady job waiting for me back in California, I should just get on the train and go home, I don't do Broadway, this isn't what I do, I have no experience with this. Instead, he dove in and he figured it out. The same is true of every single show he's done, where he very, very rarely would work on a show knowing exactly what he wanted the outcome of the show to be. Even if he was doing a revival, they were almost always transformative revivals in some way. Mm -hmm. And that is a big part of the joy of it because he got to explore himself as much as he was exploring the show and seeing where it took him as much as he was taking it. Following that gut instinct, following that heart, and especially following your heart in terms of kindness. And no matter if someone's cruel to you, no matter if someone tries to snipe you down, still making the conscious decision to lead with kindness and compassion every single day, doesn't matter if you get knocked down, you get back up and keep walking that road. I think it's the most important thing we can all do, no matter if we work in theater or not.
0: Well, Margaret, I think that's a lovely note to end on. It was such a pleasure to get to talk to you today. Thanks so much for appearing on New Books in Performing Arts to talk about your wonderful book, Gemignani, Life and Lessons from Broadway and Beyond. Many more fun stories in this book, uh, a lot more uh, great uh, advice, uh, a really good time. So I think if you're you're a musical theater fan or if there's a musical theater fan in your life, you couldn't do any better than checking out this great book.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.